Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. For those of you who attend here regularly, I don't have to tell you that our basic MO or method of operation here is to go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we just finished up studying Colossians. We're going to start something today that I haven't done before, I've always wanted to do, and it's a little out of my comfort zone, but I hope that it will be helpful for all of us. Whether you know it or not, electronic media has changed the way people read the Bible. People don't read through the Bible, they just look for a verse of the day. Or, if they want to know on a particular subject, they will say, well, what does the Bible have to say about this or that? And they'll just pull that up and read it. There's nothing wrong with a verse of the day, except that sometimes it's taken out of context. If you're not careful, you pull a verse out that God gave to Israel that at that particular moment in her history may not be exactly applicable to you and me at the moment. And what I want people to do is to read the Bible. So we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation, verse by verse. (laughs) We will finish in 2078. I'll be 150 years old. I'm just kidding. We are going to begin a journey through the book. It's not just a book, it's the book. We're going to give you every week a sheet that looks something like this. It'll have more on it than the book. This kind of explains the reading plan, but beginning next Sunday, I'm going to preach out of Genesis one time. We're going to start reading Genesis together. We're going to give you two reading plans. You can either read it just, just for reading it, or if you want to go in depth, there's a few sections that you'll want to read a little deeper. It'll be completely up to you. We're going to give you one of these. You'll have an outline of the book of Genesis. You'll have a reading plan. Sermon notes will be separate because I'll just preach one sermon out of Genesis. There will be times when we're going to have to do more than one book in a week. Obviously, there's 66 books in the Bible, 52 weeks in a year, and we usually take a few weeks for Christmas, New Year's, and Easter. But we're going to try this, and I'm hoping that you will read the Bible through, and we're going to speak at it each week. Now, for you OCD people, beginning reading through the Bible in September may just set you off. I don't know. <laughs> but we're, we're going to start in Genesis next Sunday. And we'll give you a, a sheet. We've got the holes punched for you. We're, I don't know if we're working on notebooks or not, but you can put it in a notebook and you'll have an outline and a reading plan for every book of the Bible. And you can go along during the week. And I hope that you will do that as we go through the word of God. What I want to do is to show you Jesus in all the books of the Bible because he's there. And so we're going to do our best to do that. So it's going to be different. We're going to try this, but I've always wanted to do it. My wife doesn't think I can do it. And she is, she's a teacher. 
uh, uh, when I say it to you, she has a gift of teaching. And when she teaches the scripture, she says, I, you, it would just drive her crazy to try to pick one passage out of one time and preach and keep on moving on. So y'all pray for Laura. This is going to be a hard year for her. <laughs> it's going to be a hard year for her. Now today, I want to share with you something that a lot of you already know. But some of you are new believers. Some of you are new Christians. Some of you are new to even opening the Bible. And so what I'm going to share with you might be new to you and help you understand a little bit more than this is more than just a book. Now, for those of you who've known this a long time, some of you are getting up in years and you may have forgotten this, so I'm going to remind you. Just teasing, okay? So even if we know it, it doesn't hurt to be reminded. 2 Timothy verse. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or the person of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask as we journey through the word, that you will make it come alive, that you will change lives, you change the nature of our church, you change everything, God, as, as we look in your word together. And today, thank you for your word, the word of God. And may we understand why this is such an exceptional book and not just any other book. So God, we ask that you bring people to you to fall in love with their Bibles again, to read them again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was a legalistic seminary student who tried to come up with a verse of scripture for everything that he did. And he was doing fine. He wanted some kind of scriptural justification for everything he did. And he was on solid ground if he could quote a Bible verse to, do, to okay his actions. And he did all right until he fell in love with a young lady on the campus. And so true to his conscience, he would walk her to the dorm each night and he would quickly say good night. And this went on for weeks, but he was trying to find a scripture to justify giving her a kiss good night. He couldn't find one. Until he came across Romans that said, greet one another with a holy kiss. And he thought, I better check this out with a professor. So he went to the professor, say, will this verse work? And the professor said, no, really and truly it deals more with a church setting than a dating situation. So once again, he didn't have a passage to condone kissing his girl goodnight. That evening, he was walking her to the dorm after they'd been out on a date, and once again, he started to bid her goodnight, but as he did, she grabbed him and planted one of those big red 15-second kisses right on his lips. And at the end of the kiss, the seminary student gasped for air, was stammering, Bible verse, Bible verse. And the girl grabbed him a second time, and just before she kissed him, said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. <laughs> We want to look at the Bible verses. We want to look at God's word. And so today is sort of a, a beginning of that. But you need to understand that the Bible is not just a book. It is the book. So let's begin by first looking at the attraction and appeal of the Bible. What's the distinction? What makes it so different? All that we know concerning God comes from the Bible. 
You wouldn't know God otherwise. You might see there's some order in creation, but you would not know God if it weren't for the Bible. All that we know concerning life and its origin comes from the Bible. All that we know concerning the purpose of man, why are we on this planet, comes from the Bible. All that we know concerning man's sin and man's true condition with God comes from the Bible. All that we know concerning God's love and the purpose for Christ coming into the world, we get from God's word. All that we know concerning salvation and how man can have a right standing before God comes from God's word. And all that we know concerning the future life comes from the Bible. So all of that, we know, we wouldn't know where we stood with God or that we could even be saved if we did not have the Bible. So the attraction and the appeal is, it tells us what we're about. It tells us why we're here. It tells us where we're going. It tells us all about God's love. Who is the author of the Bible? What is the origination? Well, I just read to you 2 Timothy 3.16 that said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and so on. All scripture comes from God. The Bible is the most influential book in the history of the world. It was written by 40 different people over a period of 1,600 years on three different continents Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and some Aramaic. Its writers came from all different walks of life. For example, the prophet Jeremiah, Zechariah was a priest, Amos was a shepherd, David was a king, Nehemiah was a servant, Luke was a doctor, Matthew was a tax collector, Paul was a Pharisee. There's a gap of 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament were written in the desert of the Sinai or the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. At least four of Paul's letters were written while he was in prison. Daniel wrote while he was in the courts of Babylon. And some of the Psalms were written while David kept sheep on the hills of Judea. And yet when you read the Bible, you're going to see that it is recorded all of those years, all those many different people. There is a common thread and theme through the whole book. And what's amazing, let's say I picked 10 of you and I said, you have a year to write about the meaning of life. Now, you can't talk with one another, you can't share notes, you can't converse with one another, oh, this year. And even though you're from the same church and you speak the same language, what do you think the chances are of all of those 10 now treatises having any kind of continuity about them? It won't happen. It won't happen because these people were part of what God did, but God is the author. For example, in Genesis, it starts in paradise, the Garden of Eden, and there's a special tree in that garden. It ends in Revelation with paradise, and there's a special tree in that place. And all from Genesis to Revelation is God's plan of getting us from here where we got kicked out of this paradise because of our sin to get us into this one. And the common theme runs all through the word of God. First Peter 1.21 tells us who the author is. For prophecy never came by the will of man, 
but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The author of the, the scripture is God himself. And that's why there's, so, there's continuity from Genesis to maps. Revelation. Y'all are asleep. <laughs> I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking to you about the acquisition of the Bible, the inspiration of it. Because when it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, did you know there are a lot of theories about this? And I heard some of them when I was in school. In fact, back in the late 70s and early 80s when there was a resurgence back to the Bible in the Southern Baptist Convention, it was a result of some of us who sat in school and heard liberal professors demeaning and explaining away all the miraculous things of, the God, of God's word. Now, I heard all, I heard all of this kind different people, not by one person, but let me, let me briefly tell you a little bit about them. Some believe in natural inspiration. In other words, they don't believe any of it is divine. It was just another writing by man, a gifted writers and artists and poets and musicians created a masterpiece, sort of like Homer's Odyssey or Dante's comedy or the writings of Shakespeare. They even compare it to Mohammed's Quran. It's Mohammed's Quran, not God's Quran. Some will even go as far to suggest that the Bible was not divinely inspired, but just the greatest of human writings. And they're the same guys that'll say that it's full of folklore and all kinds of stuff. So natural inspiration is just written by a bunch of men over 1,600 years, big deal. No big deal. That's what they say. Then there are those who believe in partial inspiration. According to this view, inspiration only refers to the doctrinal and pre doctrinal teachings and the precepts. But you can't trust the historical or the geographical or the scientific statements in the Bible that, that, that's not reliable. And that they say that the inspiration only had to do with the author's thoughts and not the actual words that he wrote down. Does it matter what words that he wrote down? It was just his thoughts. The view also maintains that God suggested the ideas and the general trend of the revelation then left man free to express it in his own language. And along with this view is the idea that some portions of the Bible are more inspired than the others. That view refuses to pay any credence to the verbal inspiration theory, which I'm about to share with you in a moment. It, it does extensive damage from this standpoint. If the words are not inspired then why do an exegetical study? You know, when we go through verse by verse, I usually will share with you many times that this Greek word was used, that they used that, and it means this. Well, if their words aren't inspired, we're wasting our time. It doesn't matter. And if it's also in direct opposition to what the Bible says. The scripture says, 1 Corinthians 2.13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And if the expressions are not exact or they're uncertain, then what assurance do you have that the rest of it is true? There's also degrees, uh, the theory of degrees of inspiration. Now this is based on the assumption that some parts of the Bible are more inspired than other parts of the Bible. 
it gives latitude for the contention that the Bible is infested with errors. It gives birth to the idea that it contains the word of God. It is not the word of God. It contains the word of God. Now, many feel that the Bible's full of myths and legends and tribal folklore, which has been carried down through the years. I remember as a sophomore in college, Old Testament survey professor, this, this is what irritated me the most, is that there were two classes that in this Baptist college that you had to take, and they were both survey classes, Old Testament and New Testament. It was not religions, religion majors, it was everybody had to take the two survey classes, and you had an Old Testament professor who was teaching a survey class that everybody on campus had to take, and he explains away all of the supernatural events of the Old Testament. I'm thinking, dude, you're gonna have to answer that one day telling all these lost people that you can't even look at the word of God. Uh, it gives birth to the idea that it contains the word of God and it's full of myths and legends. There's some people who don't believe there was a Jonah or a Noah or there was a worldwide flood. They don't believe that stuff. They just believe it's all folklore. And then it's made, some maintain that we accept the humanistic side of the Bible, but we, when it comes to the miraculous and the mysterious, it doesn't fit into our, our philosophy, so we do away with that. It's kind of the idea that anything goes. And we have a lot of people that do that today. When you take away the divine from this book, you pretty much throw it away because you can believe anything you want. And trust me, there are a lot of people today who will not teach the word of God. They won't, they won't go through there because it doesn't agree with them. So a lot of people today have different, taste, different ways they want to live, and then they try to find somebody that will agree with them and find it just right in the Bible. Now, there's another one I call mechanical inspiration. Now, they're trying to defend God's word, but here's what they say, that God dictated the scriptures to man and controlled them in a mechanical way as they wrote. It was almost like they were in a trance and the Holy Spirit was writing them and they didn't have anything to do with it. They just wrote down what the Holy Spirit told them to, to do. Now, even though they're trying to defend and uplift the scriptures, it's still not consistent with biblical truth. Because if this theory is correct and God did in fact dictate the scriptures to a bunch of robots writing it down, then the Bible would be uniform all the way through in the way it's character and in, in the way that it's written. It could be easily proven that the message of the Bible has continuity but no continuity of structure. The Bible is continuous but the structure's all different. Uh, we find, for example, that Luke uses very pure Greek, Paul uses difficult Greek, and John uses simple Greek. The writings of John are distinctively John's, while the writings of Paul are distinctively Pauline. So it couldn't have been just a mechanical, they're in a trance and they don't even know what they're writing. So what is it? I'll, show you, I'll tell you what I hold to, and most people who believe the Bible hold to, and you know I'm right. <laughs> I keep forgetting there are people who don't have a sense of humor and they may turn that on and go, that's an arrogant rascal. Um, the verbal plenary inspiration of God. 
Now, what does that mean? Verbal means that the Holy Spirit guided in the choice of words which were to be used. However, the characteristics and personalities of the writers persevered or were preserved and their styles and vocabularies are used, but without the intrusion of error. And God can easily do that. Isaiah does not write like Ezekiel, nor does Daniel write like Jeremiah. Moses had his own unique touch, speaks of his own experiences in history, and so does King David. But Moses writes matter-of-factly. David writes emotionally and sensitively. John the fisherman is quiet and profound. Peter is bold and unpolished. Paul is scholarly and systematic. Luke writes like a doctor drawing from the writings of others as if a thesis paper and making careful observations about the health issues that he tells in his story. So each of the individual writers displays their own characteristic and personality and style, but their works were also the 100% the product of God as well. They wrote what they wrote, drawing upon their own thoughts and using their own styles, but the Holy Spirit moved them and borne them along, helping them write. And when God did that, the words they used, the ideas they conveyed were all exactly like God wanted them written. And they taught the truth of God that he wanted taught and were protected from error. So they know they didn't hear the voice of God when I say verbal, but they, God led them to write what they wrote, but kept their personality in that. And plenary means that the accuracy of that verbal inspiration is extended for all of God's word, from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, the word plenary means full or complete or entire or absolute. And folks, I want to tell you, the scripture bears this out. All scripture is inspired by God, it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. The prophets transmitted God's word, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. The written revelation is so complete that John said, don't add to it in Revelation 22.18. Don't add anything to this. So that leaves no room, listen carefully, it leaves no room for new revelation from God. Period. Doesn't matter if the Pope says it, it doesn't matter who says it. If you have somebody who says, well, I'm an apostle, I'm still a prophet, and they begin to speak, if it's contrary to God's word, don't listen to them. We have the completed word of God. All he wanted us to have right here. So, the verbal, plenary, inspiration of God. That's what we believe here. Now, is the Bible accurate? Is it reliable? Can it be trusted? We have more manuscripts of the biblical text than exist for any other ancient writing. Now that tells us how God has preserved his word over the years. Listen to this. We have roughly 25,000 partial or complete New Testament manuscripts including 6,000 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and almost 10,000 more in other ancient languages. But even if we did not have those manuscripts, just the writings of the early church fathers quoted from the New Testament 
86,000 times. They, we could almost have put the New Testament together just from the writings of the early church fathers. There are 14,000 manuscripts, Old Testament. And if you lay them side by side, once about every 1,580 words, you'll find a variation. And it's usually a spelling variation only. Is the Bible accurate? It predicted the rebirth of Israel to the day. You do the math. Take the prophecy of Ezekiel 4, verses 3 through 6. Calculate the days using a lunar calendar, which is what Israel used. Take into account the leap years and the duplication of 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. Y'all know that's the same year. There was no zero. So the duplicate, you take all of that into account and you come up with the date, May 15th, 1948, the exact date the British officially declared Israel as a nation. Now, the Bible predicted the arrival of the Messiah to the day. Do the math associated with the prophecy in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. You calculate the days using a lunar calendar. You take away the leap, or you take into account the leap years and the duplication of 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., and you come up with the March 30th, A.D. 33. March 30th was a Sunday that year, the exact date of the triumphal entry. Daniel even predicted the Messiah would be killed after his entry. And the Bible not only predicted the entry of the Messiah, but his execution 173,885 days, 85 days before it happened. There are 48 in the Old Testament, 48 specific prophecies. And then there's 300 ramifications of prophecies concerning the Messiah, all published 500 years before he came. And the odds of him fulfilling just 47 of those is astronomical, much less 300. Yeah, you can count on the Bible. It's accurate. Don't let any ignorant person tell you otherwise. They don't know what they're talking about. I want you to notice the agelessness of the Bible 1 Peter 1.24 says, All flat flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Governments have outlawed it. Forces have tried to destroy it. Infidels have ridiculed it. Liberals have denied it. The forces of hell have united against it. But the more it is attacked, the stronger it becomes. It's here to stay. In fact, the only two things on this earth that are eternal are people and the Word of God. Amen. Now, many of you know the arrangement of the Bible. I wrote it down for you so you wouldn't have to worry about trying to write all that in there. And for most of you, you still remember it back from the days when you were still young. Or young in the faith. What are the, what are the divisions? Old Testament and New Testament. Testament means covenant or agreement. The old covenant, the new covenant. And the difference between the two testaments, the old testament is the record of God's dealing with people under the law. 
The New Testament is the record of God's dealing with people under grace. The Old Covenant ended, the New Covenant began at the cross. Quickly, let me remind you, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the Pentateuch, which means five books. And it is usually a one, considered one volume. It's called the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. John 1.45 and John 7.19 tells us that God inspired Moses to write those first five books of the Bible that we have in the Bible. The next books are the historical books, the next 12. It shows how the Lord brings the chosen people from the prom, into the promised land and how the law cannot bring salvation. It shows the continual apostasy of Israel and then tells us the stories of great leaders and kings. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, both Samuels, both Kings, both Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We call them the historical books. The poetry books are sometimes called the wisdom literature. It's books of encouragement and comfort and wisdom and songs. They're called wisdom. They're the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Then you have the prophets. The 17 books are divided into two sections, the major and the minor. Now this is not like baseball divisions. <laughs> the reason they're called major and minor is simply because of the amount of literature that they wrote. The major prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Their books have a lot of literature and a lot of, a lot of uh, information in them. The minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zahagai, Zechariah, and Malachi, smaller books. But all of these prophets are major. Did you know that the actual chronology of the Bible goes from Genesis to Nehemiah? The historical record, Genesis to Nehemiah, all of those books after Nehemiah fit into somewhere between Genesis and Nehemiah, those prophets are speaking during that time. So that's just to give you an idea of the chronology of that. Now, when you get to the New Testament, first four books are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They speak of the biographical information of Jesus, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. One historical book, Acts. Guess where we are in the book of Acts? We're in chapter 29. There's no chapter 29 in the book of Acts, but that is the history of the church, the New Testament church. We're helping to write the next chapter. It won't be in the Bible, but you understand what I'm saying, that we're at the end of the book of Acts because the church is still going on. You have the Pauline epistles. Now we call the next 14 books the Pauline epistles, and you can divide them into three sections. The church epistles, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. The pastoral epistles, as Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. And then the personal epistles are Philemon and Hebrews. Yes, I know there's no complete proof that Paul wrote Hebrews. We don't know exactly. I believe it was Paul. And when we get to heaven, you'll find out I was right. <laughs> But it's included in the Pauline epistles. Now, the next are the, and by the way, an epistle is a letter. It's not the wife of an apostle, <laughs> as one little boy thought. The general letters or epistles carry the name of the authors, James, Peter, John, and Jude. And then there's one prophetical book, 
sometimes called the Apocalypse, Revelation. It was written by the Apostle John. It's the last book of the New Testament. So the New Testament, four Gospels, one book of history, 14 Pauline epistles, seven general epistles, and one book of prophecy, 27 books in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, for a total of 66. Now, is the Bible still relevant? Yeah, let's look at the applicability. I know that's a big word for y'all. Can you still apply it to your lives is what that means. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. James 1 says it's a mirror. It reveals our spiritual condition. Hebrews 4.12 says it's a sword. It divides between the soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow. Psalm 107.20 says it's a bomb. It heals. Psalm 119.105 says it's a lamp. It guides our feet. Psalm 119.105 says it's a light. It brightens our path. Jeremiah 23.29 says it's a fire. It purges out the dross. Luke 8.11 says it's a seed. It provides fruit in our life. And because the Bible comes directly from God, it equips us, as, first, as 2 Timothy says, it equips us to do every good work. Do you want to know God's will? Read the Bible. You want to fulfill your mission in life? Study the Bible. You want to know what God wants you to do? Study the word. Do you want to live a better life? Study the Bible. Do you want freedom from sin? Study the Bible. Do you want God to be pleased with your life? Study the word. It'll tell you everything you need to know. And when you go back to that 2 Timothy 3.16, you pay attention to the phrases Paul used to describe the practical impact of the Bible. It says God's word is right. It's good for teaching. God's word, it tells us what is not right for rebuking, how to get right for correction, and how to stay right for training in righteousness. It shows us where we are. And when you study the Bible for all it's worth, you begin to realize you're not reading the Bible. The Bible's reading you. It's a mirror. That's why I want us to read the Bible through, because it'll change your life. Now, I know Jesus will change your heart, but the Bible will lead you to Jesus. Bible doesn't save you. We don't worship the Bible. But how else are we going to know about Jesus except from the Word of God? Which leads me to the last thing. What is the aim of the Bible? What's the theme? Begins in the book of Revelation, ends in the book of Revelation, excuse me, begins in the book of Genesis, ends in the book of Revelation, the theme is the redemption of mankind, the salvaging, the saving. In fact, in Genesis 3, when man sinned, in that same chapter, you have the first prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah, where Jesus says that a man born of a woman would come into the world to defeat to crush the serpent's head. That mention a man, Jesus was born of a virgin. Is that important? Absolutely it's important. You get your bloodline from your father. And if Jesus had been born of Joseph, 
He would have been born with a sinful nature just like you and me and could not have lived a sinless life, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't come in the world with a sinful nature. He was tempted, but did not sin. So when he died on the cross, God put our sin on him as the substitute, the atonement to bring us back to him. The Old Testament is a history of the Hebrew race through which this person, the Messiah, would come and eventually crush the head of the serpent. Why do you think more than once that Satan has tried to annihilate the Jews? Because he's coming through them. There are a lot of sub-themes in the Old Testament, but the main theme is the preparation of the one that would be born, as Galatians 4, 4 says, in the fullness of time. The theme of the Old Testament, the theme of the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. Matthew begins his book with a genealogy to show that the promised Messiah of Genesis three fifteen had come. When you lay hold of the Bible, the Bible lays hold of you. I want to paraphrase 1 Peter 1, 23. For you have been born again. Your new life did not come from your earthly parents because the life they gave you will end in death. But this new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. This stuff that's going on in our world right now There is no hope apart from a heart change. And one reason they're burning Bibles now in the streets of some of these cities, because see, the scripture makes it clear about how we're supposed to live. I believe, I believe all lives do matter, I do. I, I even like the slogan, Black Lives Matter, but I don't like the organization. And you need to read the difference. Don't be throwing your support behind an organization that is anti-God. Now, you understand, I'm for the slogan, but not the organization. I believe all lives matter. I do, I do. I believe even unborn lives matter. I do. So if we're gonna talk about all lives matter, let's talk about the unborn lives too, because God's word talks about it. God's word says, I saw you in your mother's womb. I formed your inward parts. The only hope we have in this nation is when people come to Jesus because he will change their heart. Religion does not change your heart. The, the word of God didn't give us religion. It told us about a relationship we can have with God. And it only, only, only comes through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do not buy into the baloney that all of us are headed to God on using different paths. No, we're on the path to God through Jesus Christ. The rest of them are on the road to hell when they reject Jesus Christ. That'll get me a lot of mail. Just send it, I don't care. Because we are on the road because of Jesus, not because of us, not the Baptist. It's about Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, 
Don't take my word for it. It's as plain as written down in God's word. So why do you think they want to destroy this? Because then we can do what we want. Folks, don't just be a verse of the day person. Be a Bible reader. And that's why we're going to walk through it together. Yeah, one, one verse, one sermon out of Genesis isn't going to touch it. But we're still going to look for Jesus in all of it. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, that's what this is all about, really. The only hope our nation has, the only hope our world has is for it to turn to Jesus. And if you don't know him as your savior, you don't have to be a Baptist. You don't have to join our church. I don't care what denomination or religious background you've come from. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have life. You turn from your sin. You ask God to forgive you. Why? Because Jesus lived a sinless life, died on the cross. God atoned for our sin by putting it on Jesus. But unlike all the other so-called prophets of religion, Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He rose again. He conquered death and sin. And if you will place your faith in him, you can be saved today. Heavenly Father, I pray for those watching online, if they're watching on television, they're watching here, I pray, God, for those that don't know you. Would you open their eyes to the truth? Thank you for your word that makes it clear. We pray that people would ask you now to forgive them. They would confess their sin to you. That they would believe in their heart and mind that Jesus paid it all. He died for their sin and rose again. And they could trust him and invite him into their life right now. God, I pray for those of us who have, we've had a Bible for decades. Would you help us open it again and read it? I pray, Father, you change everything about Southcrest as we read your word together. I pray you draw us closer to you that we might be people who love you and love your word because we know that it will not return void and it'll change lives. So I pray that You'd help us make a commitment to read all of it, to read it through. I pray for those that need a church. If this is the place you want them to come, well, Lord, they ought to know by now this is a place we're gonna uphold Jesus and look at your word. I pray for those that need to be baptized. You give them courage, just like Piper who was baptized earlier. You give him courage to stand for Christ. If you're watching online, you hit that connect button and there'll be people there to help you and pray with you. For those of you in this room, after we're dismissed here in just a second, then there'll be some guys up here at the front to pray with you about anything. Maybe it's something else on your heart that you want to talk to someone about. Or if you want to take that communication card and put, it, put on there your commitment today and drop it in the box as you leave today, we will call you on the telephone and talk to you about a commitment to Christ whatever. So Lord, today we make a commitment to you. We thank you for your word. We pray that you will change our lives. 
draw us closer, strengthen us, correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness. We make that commitment to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.